0: Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Amen. If you have your Bibles, will you follow me over to the Gospel of John? As Denise was singing, we'll be in chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 16 through 30 today. But as Denise was singing, I couldn't help but think about Psalm 23. I know that uh, everybody knows Psalm 23, but no matter what you're going through, no matter where you are in your life, if the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. Right? Because he's with you. His rod and his strength. They comfort you, right? And praise God, we serve a God who is not so aloof that he doesn't want to interact with us personally. As a matter of fact, he knows you so much, he knows every hair that's on the top of your head or the lack thereof, bread. But he knows us intimately, right? And wants to have a relationship with us and always boggles my mind. In this world right now, over 8 billion people, but this one individual because of Jesus Christ, can go to the throne room of God and have God's undivided attention. Isn't that amazing? So follow me with with me uh, to, to, to John chapter four, verse 16. We will begin. And God's word says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship uh, must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, "I know the Messiah is coming he, he who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, "I who speak to you am he." Just then his disciples came back they marveled that he was ta- he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this privilege that you've given us to be in your house in the Privilege we have, Lord, to be in your presence and under your uh, power and under the person of the Holy Spirit impacting our lives as we endeavor to know more about you. And Father, we ask this morning that as we uh, study the truth of your word, as we look over this narrative we see between Jesus and this lady at the well, that Lord, you will give us insight to your character, give us insight into how it is that we ought to live in light of what it is we know about you and what you have done. May we be a changed people because we've been under the truth of your word. And as always, Lord, use this feeble vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us and following along with us, you know that we're in the midst of this conversation that Jesus is having with this Samaritan woman at the well. And we've already made the point that one, Jews, you know, Jesus is is traveling up to to Galilee and the Bible told us last time that he must go through Samaria. We know that there had to be something more uh, to that because Jews would not have gone through Samaria normally. They would have gone around. They would have crossed the river and went up the bank of the river and then crossed back over to get to Galilee rather than going through Samaria because the only people the Jews hated worse than Gentiles were Samaritans because they were... Uh, to put it, uh, for a lack of a better way to put it, they were, they were half-breeds. They were, they were a mixture of Jew and Gentile, and they had a perverted idea of Judaism. Uh, and so they would have gone out of their way to avoid that place and to avoid uh, Samaritans and the, and the area of Samaria all altogether. But here we find Jesus. The Bible says he must go. Why? Because he had a divine appointment to speak to this woman. And so Jesus goes, and we, we know they've been traveling all day. And when they got to the end, uh, to this spot where Jacob's well was, Jesus sat down. The Bible says he was exhausted. He was tired, and he sat down, and he sent his disciples out to go get water uh, or to go get food, rather. And the woman came in the middle of the day. It was, it was noontime, the hottest part of the day. The woman came, we learned, because she's an outcast. We'll, we'll see it in this text today because of her lifestyle, She was an outcast and she she had to avoid the normal days that other women would come because they would be after her, right? They would be making fun of her, mocking her. And so she came when she thought no one would be there and lo and behold, here's this Jewish man sitting here and not only that, he speaks to her and asks her for a drink of water. What in the world's going on here? Well, we have to keep in mind what John's purpose is, right? Go to John chapter 20, you remember He says that, hey, Jesus did many things. He said many things. He'd done many things that are not written in this book, but these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing in his name, you might have eternal life. So in this narrative, John chose to put it here to show us why it is that we ought to believe on Jesus Christ. And I think there are, some, there are some peripheral things that we can learn from this passage as how does Jesus engage people when he is involved in a gospel conversation? We saw that with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was a religious man. He was uh, endeavoring to follow after Yahweh and follow after, after the law. Now this was a religiously indifferent woman, right? A, a sinful woman. And Jesus shares the gospel with her just like you did with uh, Nicodemus. And so uh, today we're gonna unpack the rest of this narrative or at least this portion of it um, by way of about three or four headings. First, we'll see uh, Jesus confronts her sin in verse 16 through 18. Then we're gonna see that Jesus corrects her insufficient theology in verses 19 through 24. And then Jesus confirms his identity as Messiah in verses 25 through 27. And then the woman points people to Christ in verses 28 through 30. So let's let's begin. Jesus confronts her sin, verses 16 through 18. So join me in God's word as we go through this narrative uh, together. The Bible says again, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, why does Jesus interject that statement into this dialogue? I can only give you a, a, a you know a, a surmise as to why Jesus would have done this. Two things come to mind, and most people would agree at least on one of these two things. Uh, one of them is that Jesus understood the culture, right? He understood why. What 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 is this the the tension that is in this narrative? It is that this Jewish man is speaking to this. Samaritan woman? That's the question she asked him whenever they first begin the dialogue, right? Why is it that you, a Jewish man, are talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Now, it wouldn't matter if it was Samaritan or not. Jewish men would typically not talk to women in public. And so this was even more uh, countercultural because not only was he speaking to a woman, he was speaking to a Jewish woman. So Jesus understood the culture and it would have been more appropriate for him culturally to speak to the woman's husband. That's one aspect to this reason that Jesus brought this here. He understood the culture. But there's something else. I think that this woman at this point in the conversation, she, she's, ready to, she's ready to bolt, right? She's ready to, to leave. She ready to go back home. But what does Jesus do? He gives her calls for pause so he can keep the conversation going. And then he gives her a statement that's going to cause her to face her sinfulness. And he asks her, go get your husband. He hits right to the spot. He did not need anybody to tell him what's in the heart of man, right? <coughs> We've learned that already. He knows. And we see in this narrative, he knows exactly who this woman is and everything there is to know about this woman. He is the God man. He's the second person of the Trinity. This is his divinity on display. How else could he know these things if, God, if he were not God, right? And he had the omniscience of God working um, here in this situation. Well, listen to how the woman answers this. The woman answered him, I have no husband. You know what's significant about this? She don't tell all the truth. She just tells a half truth, right? It is true, we're going to find out. It is true. She has no husband. But there's more to the story. How often do we act just like this woman? When we are called into confrontation with our own sinfulness, that we only tell half the truth about the, the level of depravity that is inherent within us. Don't we color code it to make ourselves look as good as we can? Y'all might not, but I do, right? Don't we, don't we do that? We, we want to, people to perceive us in the best uh, light that, that they can perceive us. So we might not tell all the truth, right? As it relates to our sinfulness. But don't, don't be deceived, you and I are just as guilty and just as sinful as this lady and whatever, whatever we read next about this lady, we are just as guilty and just as sinful and we need to be honest with God. That's part, you know, what's, what's the last thing this lady says to Jesus last week whenever we ended that discussion? She says to him, sir, give me this water. Now she was still thinking in the earthly, right? Because she said, so I don't have to come to this well and keep on drawing that I can have this water that'll, that'll make me not thirsty ever again. Well, we know there's a spiritual element of what Jesus was saying, but the reality is the only way she could really receive the water that Jesus was given that spiritual life was if she first confronted her sinfulness and says, I agree with God that I am a sinner and I am in need of a savior to give me life-saving water. And that's the problem with the world today, right? That was our problem. That was your problem. And it was my problem before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. We didn't know that we were sinners. We didn't confront our sinfulness. We reveled in it, right? But in order to receive the mercy and grace of God, the first thing that has to happen is we have to come face to face with our depravity and our sinfulness. And Jesus brings her to this point. And Jesus said to her, you you are right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now we're going to camp out just a moment. This is the reason the woman came at twelve o'clock in the in, in at noontime to to draw water, because she had gone through five husbands and she was to use our vernacular shacked up with this guy. And so, from the from the town's perspective, hey. From the town's perspective, she, she was an outcast. She was a sinful wretch. Now, here's the sad reality. Everyone that was looking in at her, saying that she was a sinful wretch and treating her as if she was an outcast, well, every, every one of them was just like she was. They might not have had five husbands, right? But they were just as depraved and in need of a savior as she was. How many times do we look out into the world and, and, and treat people in this world as though we are, they are less than us. You know, you've heard it ad nauseum from many preachers. The only difference between the people that are in this world and the people that are in the pews in this church, if you're a believer, is that you've been saved. You've been saved by the grace of God. Because before that, you were just as wicked as any person you could think of. You just didn't know it, and you didn't believe it about yourself. And Jesus caused this lady to confront that in her life. And that has happened to you today. Maybe today for the very first time. That's what happened to me, right? I realized in the midst of a revival service when the, when the preacher was preaching that I was a sinful, you know, sot. And if something didn't happen, I was going to die and go to hell. And I didn't want to. And God reached down in his grace and mercy and he saved me because of that. Maybe you're here here today, and that's going on in your heart and your mind today. You're realizing for the very first time that I am a sinner, that I am lost and undone, and I need a Savior. Well, today, come to Christ, and he'll give you that living water. But there's a peripheral issue we need to deal with in this passage, and I'll try not to take too long with this. Because I think Jesus teaches us some things in this passage in a peripheral way about the issue of marriage. And what we need to understand is, one, again, to use our, you know, use our old language, shacking up ain't marriage. You understand what I'm saying? Just because you have a companion and you have a, 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 a complementary situation, an agreeable situation, that did not make it marriage. Right? Because what does Jesus say to this lady? You've had five husbands. In other words, you've entered into something called marriage five times. Now you're living with another guy, but he's not your husband. So just living together don't make you married. And that leads to another idea. The culture, humanity, we don't define marriage. God defines marriage. You know how God has defined marriage? Well, we learned about it in the very first week of Sunday school. We were in Genesis, right? He says that a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And I think Jesus is validating that in this statement that he made to this woman. And if you don't believe that, go to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus expressly deals with the issue of marriage. And you know where Jesus where Jesus roots his understanding about marriage? Well, he's God, so he knows it, right? He defined it. But you know where Jesus, uh, the incarnate Messiah, roots his teaching on marriage? All the way back in Genesis, because he's talking about divorce, divorce over in Matthew chapter 19, because people raise that question, hey, is, can I divorce my, my wife for whatever reason? And Jesus Goes into this this definition of biblical marriage about a man leaving and cleaving, and he even goes so much to say, "If you divorce a woman for any reason other than sexual immorality, then you become an adulterer if you go and get married again." So that leads to the third thing that we need to talk about in what Jesus is discussing about this issue of marriage. What about divorce? Right. I started out by saying this: divorce is not always sinful. Divorce can be sinful, right? But it's not always. And I think the Bible gives us three, two exceptions that are explicit, right? We already talked about one, Matthew 19. What does Jesus say? If there is unfaithfulness in the marriage, sexual immorality in the marriage, then you can divorce that person. You can't. You don't have to. There is no mandate in the Bible that says you must be divorced if this happens. You don't have to. You can work through it. But there is biblical grounds for it. And the second thing Paul brings in, right, in, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul reminds us that if we are unequally yoked together, in other words, you have a, maybe you've got a couple, they're both lost. One of them gets saved and the other one's still lost. Paul says if the lost person still wants to live with the saved person, then by means, stay married. But if the lost person decides that they don't want to stay anymore and they, in essence, abandon the saved person, then you're not obligated, right? You're free in that sense is what he's saying. So in that sense, there is biblical precedent, not precedent, but biblical, I guess, means that you can get divorced in those areas. But the Bible doesn't say you have to. As a matter of fact, the Bible really encouraged that you stay together in that situation. And the one who is the, the righteous, the saved, will impact the one who is the lost. And then there's an implied aspect to this because if you understand where Paul's coming from in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's an implicit or latent teaching, I think, that is there. Because where does Paul root his teaching on this idea of marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Well, I'll tell you. He roots it over in Exodus chapter 21. And in Exodus chapter 21, that section that Paul is referencing has to do with a spouse's, uh, in particular the husband's, role to take care of the wife, to provide for the needs of the wife. And so if the husband decides to not to do that, that falls under this idea of abandonment, right? He is abandoning his responsibility. And I think you can make an argument that abuse is not care. And so if there is abuse in a marriage, again, I'm not saying that you have to, maybe the proper way is to separate for a time. Bible talks about that, right? Separate for a time, work things out and come back together. But I think under the guise of this idea of care, if a person is abusing you, one, you need to get to safety, right? Don't stay there. Get out and get to safety. And number two, that is a violation of the covenant relationship that marriage is and the responsibility and the role of the spouse. And you have, I think, biblical biblical freedom to exit that relationship because the one has already violated it. All right, before I get myself any more trouble, let's move on from this. The, the last thing I would say about this that everyone needs to hear, and in particular young people that are not married, we, we have this problem in our society, and you see it on TV all the time, right? It's promiscuity. You know, we, we think that uh, sex was made just for us to have pleasure, right? And that we ought to be able to have that pleasure with whomever we want to, whenever we want to. Is, is that not what we see in society today? Is that not what you see on your television set whenever you watch a television show? Right? Well, God's Word says that sex is a gift that God has given to be enjoyed in the confines of a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And it has a purpose. One, it brings them together in that fleshly union. One, well, they will become one flesh, but it also has this idea, not just the pleasure part of it, but it has a practical application of producing godly offspring. So any sexual activity outside the confines of a covenant marriage is, sinful. And I think Jesus bears this out with this woman in the statement he made about her having the five husbands and the one she's living with is not her husband. So don't let the world tell you that it's a free-for-all, right? I was born in the late 60s, but it started before. You know, we talk about it started in the 60s in America. It's been going on forever, right? It's been going on forever in this world. As long as there have been human beings on planet Earth, uh, sexuality has been perverted. And God is reminding us that that is a sanctity. It's a gift that is set aside for a married couple. And that is intended to be enjoyed between a married couple that is married for life, right? And I get it. This world's not perfect. We talked about it in the Sunday school, right? It's broken. We live in a broken world because of the fall of humanity. And hey, hey listen, there's not a one of us in this room who has not sinned. You understand that? There's not a one of us in this room. And there's not a sin that has been committed by anybody in this room that God can't forgive. Save the sin of unbelief. If you die in your unbelief, you will die and go to hell and suffer the wrath of God. But I'm here to tell you, there's not a sin that you've committed other than that that God will not forgive. If you come to him, You confront this sinfulness. You confess before him. Again, confessing is saying the same thing. I agree with you, God, that this is sinful in my life. And repentance, you know what repentance is? It is exercising the mind. It is coming into the way of God's thinking about who you are, who he is, and what sin is. And you say, I agree with you. I need you to change me, redeem me, and help me never to do that again. And God will save you. God will give you his grace and his mercy. Amen? Amen. All right. So, let's, let's move on to the next section. Jesus corrects her insufficient theology, in particular relating to worship. Because here, here's really what the woman does, okay? She tries to change the topic. Listen, listen to how, you know, Jesus just asked her, go get your husband. Tell him to come here. She says to him, I have no husband. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've been married five times and the one you with is not your husband. That's absolutely true. So instead of her continuing down that line, here's what she does. She throws up what, what uh, f- uh, philosophers or debaters would call a red herring, right? Uh, she, tries to, she tries to get us off track. Listen to what she says. The woman says to her, him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet and you might put in your margins, duh, Right? How in the world else can he know what he knows about her unless there's something supernatural about this man, right? And that's the understatement of the passage. I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. You remember Mount Gerizim? I think it was that she was talking about. And, but you say that in Jerusalem, in other words, you Jews say that in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship is where people ought to worship. And so she had this idea, and, and again, it, it, it is a cultural thing, and it, it's an Old Testament thing. They're, they were perverted, and we don't have time to have, rehash the story of the Samaritans, but just in short, the Samaritans came about after uh, the Assyrian uh, captivity of Israel. And they, they they captured the Norval, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, and they took all the, the cream of the crop with them. And they left the folks they didn't want back in Jerusalem. And those people intermarried with the pagans around them, and they became the Samaritans. And the Samaritans uh, put their temple, built a temple on Mount Gerizim and said, this is where we're going to work. And they, they followed Judaism to a degree. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the, in the rest of the Old Testament. And so they had a perverted idea of what Judaism was and the word of God was. They didn't believe it in totality. And so they had, they had set up camp there and to worship. Now, what made it even worse is the Jews came along later and destroyed their temple, right? And that, that, that heaped up on the animosity. But they believed, hey, we, need, we, we worship here. You Jews worship over there. Well, God had, to, had determined for the Jews that this is the place where I will meet with you. Remember, tabernacle. I will meet with you in this place where the cherubs are on the holy of holies. And then when the temple was built, the meeting place of God became stationary for the Jews. And then Jesus has to, has to open up her eyes to this idea of the worship of God. Because you think that Israel was really the only place that, it, that Jewish people or any person could worship God? And it was the designated place to come and to offer sacrifice and to worship God. But couldn't they worship God everywhere anyway? They could. And there was, there was reason for them to come to Israel. God had mandated that for them to bring to come in corporate worship, as it were. And the same is true for us. We, 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 can, we can worship God anywhere, can't we? That's really what Jesus is saying to this woman. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Well, there are a lot of people in this world that do that, don't they? Worship what they do not know. You can go all over this world; doesn't matter where you go, and there are people worshiping, and they're worshiping what they do not know. You know, Paul Paul's uh, sermon on on um, uh, on Mars Hill is a prime example of that, right? They were religious people there over in, in Athens. You remember all the statues that were there, and then they had the statue to the unknown god. They want to cover all their bases. Isn't that what people do in the world today? If they're not atheists, right, or claim to be atheists, most people today say, hey, whatever. However you worship, whatever you believe, all roads lead to heaven, right? But we're gonna learn a little later on in John chapter 14, Jesus is gonna make this very explicit statement. Jesus is gonna say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But there are people all in this world who worship what they do not know. Let me tell you something. They are people who sit in church pews today, who come into a church Sunday after Sunday, and they worship a God that they don't really know. You understand that? They are people who claim to be followers of Christ who sit in a church pew every Sunday and they worship a God they do not really know or understand. That's what—that's what the heart of what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Let's go on. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. You can write Romans Romans on there. Just go read the whole book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about this a little bit at the very beginning. Because the Jews were given the oracles of God, right? They were in covenant with Yahweh. Yahweh had revealed himself to them. They were to be the missionaries to the world, to show people what it was to be in covenant relationship with the one true and living God. And from them, God promised to bring the Messiah who is speaking to this woman at this moment, although she does not know that. You worship what you do not know. In other words, she didn't understand even the complete aspects of what Judaism was. We worship what we know for is of the Jews. And he says, but the hour is coming and now is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must. Don't miss that word. I told them in Sunday school, you, you can't always make, a, a, make one uh, theological note on one word. Well, this Greek word is "day." It's, necess, it's necessary. It is necessary for them to worship in this way. Just like it was necessary for Jesus to come to Samaria. He says they must worship in spirit and in truth. So the first thing that comes to my mind is, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Maybe that's the question that's raised in your mind when you read this passage. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? One, I think it means that you need to understand who it is you're worshiping. Truth lays the foundation for true spiritual worship. And secondly, we need to understand that worship is about a person and not necessarily about a place. Right? The who of worship is Yahweh. It has always been Yahweh, and it will always be Yahweh. And the what of worship is spirit and truth. And so what is Jesus saying to this woman when he says, one, God is spirit. God is omnip- uh, omnipresent. God is everywhere. So in this, that sense, you don't have to be in Mount Gerizim to worship him. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to worship him. You can worship God wherever it is that you are. And the same goes for you and for me today. The second thing about this idea of spirit is true worship is not, if you, just because you have a liturgy doesn't mean you've engaged in true worship. True worship happens when the heart, the, the inner man, it arises out of our inner being. And we have such an affection and passion for God that worship comes out of us for the God that we love and the God that we serve. It is something that begins in us and comes out of us. But here's the problem with our society today. Because when we think about spirit, we think about the inner man, we think about passion, we think about emotion, right? And emotion ought to be a part of our worship. We ought to be passionately in love with Jesus Christ. We ought to be passionate about worshiping God. But you can lean too far on emotion and you can go into crazy, you know, weird ways of worshiping God into chaos. And Paul says something about that, doesn't he? He said, we ought to do everything how? Decently and in order. So there is something about liturgy and order when we come to worship. Because it was chaos in Corinthians in Corinth, right? When Paul wrote to them. But here's our problem today: is we love the spirit part, but we don't like the truth part. Because what what do we do? We we come to worship. And I I know we don't in this in this room. I'm not talking about y'all. I'm talking about other people. Okay, so don't get offended. Listen, here's what we do as believers in our world today: we associate worship with music. And, and rightly so, because, hey, if you read the book of Psalm, it's all about worship, and it says, how many times, Candace, over and over and over again, it tells us we ought to sing praises to the Lord. But we disassociate worship with what's happening in this moment right now. When, when the preacher comes to the pulpit, we think worship is over because we just got through singing. But what does Jesus tell this woman? You can't have true worship unless you have truth. It is spirit and it is truth. And we have raised a generation of Christians in this world today where we are emotional and passionate, but our level of truth and understanding about God is about a thimbleful, Because we despise truth. We despise doctrine. And I'm here to tell you, until you have a solid orthodoxy, You'll never have a proper doxology. Until you understand the depth and the breadth to the best of your ability of who God is, you'll never be able to worship him the way he intends for you to worship him. You understand that? I was reminded when I was reading this about Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember Ezra Nehemiah they came back after the Babylonian captivity and they were rebuilding Jerusalem? Um, uh, and they found God's word and they began to read God's word. They gathered all the people together. Everybody in the Bible says they could understand. They brought them in and they stood there. I think it was Ezra who, who got up and began to read the law of God. And they read it for the better part of, of you know, half a day. Now, how long would you, would you stay here half a day? For this, probably not. I want to stay here another five minutes if you're not real. But anyway, <laughs> they stay there for, for at least half a day reading God's word. And it brought the people to tears. Just the reading of God's word. You got to have truth. And you got to have spirit for authentic worship to take place. You can't abandon the one for the other on either side. And that's what Jesus is telling this woman. It's about the who, Yahweh. And it's about the spirit and the truth that leads us to true worship. What about you today? How, how do you come to worship the Lord? Why'd you come here today? Did you come to worship God? Or did you just come through to go through some motions? Or did you just come here to check off a box? When we come here, we come here to worship the one true and living God who condescended himself, stepped into the putrid sinfulness of humanity, reached down, dove deep, grabbed you by the hand, grabbed me by the hand, and saved us from the wrath of God that is to come. And if that's not enough for worship, I don't know what is. If that can't cause you to worship God, nothing ever will because you didn't deserve that. Every one of us in this room deserted, deserved to be cast into hell and suffer for all of eternity. But in his grace and mercy, he chose to save us. And we ought to worship him for that. All right, the, the, Lord, confirms, the Lord confirms his identity. Jesus confirms his identity as, uh, as Messiah 25 through 27. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Do you know this is only two places in the New Testament that this word is used? I, I, literally in the Greek. Now, they, they may use, a, use Messiah somewhere else, but the Greek word that's used here for Messiah is only used in these two passages. I looked it up the other day, and I thought it was interesting. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, Christ, Christos, is the Greek word, the, the equivalent to uh, Mashiach, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah, the anointed one. And so John helps us understand that, right? He helps his Greek audience understand that. This Messiah is the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Well, what did this this man who was talking to her just do? Well, told her all things that were in her life. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, we're going to see in other places where Jesus says, hey, don't go and tell everybody. But what does he do to this Samaritan woman? He says, I'm the one you're looking for. Isn't that powerful? That shows us that the gospel has always been for both the Jew and the Gentile, or Jew and not Jew, right? What is Jesus, what is John doing in this passage? It's the same thing that Jesus does with with the parable of the great, of Good Samaritan. Jesus is telling his Jewish audience that, hey, I don't care who you are in this world. There's one Messiah, and everyone has to come to God through this Messiah. Even you Jews, Nicodemus, and you Samaritans. They all must come the same way. You must come the same way. I must come the same way. Just then, his disciples came back, the Bible says, and they marveled that he was talking to this woman. It goes back to the cultural aspect. They were aghast that he was talking to this woman, much less this Samaritan woman, but they were too afraid to ask him, hey, what in the world are you doing? What do you seek and why are you talking with her? They're afraid to ask him that. And I understand that. But Jesus was showing all of them. There's only one way to get to God and it is for every human being. I don't care where they were born, what color their skin is, what their social status is, there's only one way to come to be right with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to this woman, I'm the one. I'm the one you're looking for. My favorite passage, part of this whole story is, is, is right here in verse 28. Verse 28, the woman points people to Jesus. But listen, listen to what she says, or what John tells us. says, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and, and said to the people, the woman left the jar and she left with the well. Amen? She left her jar and she left with the well because Jesus was offering her spiritual water living water that would change her life, not only now, but for all of eternity. And what does she do? She says, come and see. What happened when the disciples came to Christ? You remember when we went through that, that uh, narrative in chapter two, when the disciples began to come to Christ? Every one of them that we read about, what did they do? They went and found somebody else and they said, come and see, right? Well, what's God telling us about evangelism? He's telling you and me, we ought to be going to people and say, hey, come and see, right? We always want to get into theological arguments. And you guys know me. You know I love doctrine and I love theology and I love to argue a little bit. So uh, all of that's fun to me. But we don't have to be an apologist in the sense of a superhuman, or super Christian, right? In the sense of evangelism. How many times have I told you? Well, what does God require of us? To give a reason for the hope that lies within me. I can't make you believe it. But I can share with you what I believe and what God's done for me. And that's what he's asking us. That's what he's asking us to do. He's asking us to say hey to people. I've found the Messiah. And when they raise objections, what do we say? Will you come and see? See for yourself. And that's what happens with the people later on. We'll see. Look, it says that they they come. They went out. They went to him. And then later on next week or the week after next, we're going to find out that they come to faith in Christ. Not because of what the woman said, but because they saw for themselves who he was. And that's really what happens to all of us, isn't it? Even when the preacher was preaching that Sunday and the Lord was convicting me, it ultimately came down to the fact that God revealed to me the truth. And I came to know God and trust Christ because of what I saw in the truth of God's word and and in the truth of who he was and what he's done. That's what salvation is for every one of you. It is a personal event that happens in your life. I can't be saved for you. Your folks can't be saved for you. You can't be saved just because you rub elbows with a bunch of saved people. You have to come to the place where you willfully On your own, bow your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what this woman does. That's what the people of Samaria do that we read about in this text. And that's what God's saying to you today. So I I don't know what God has spoken to you about today, that there are many side issues that we dealt with. Maybe one of those side issues is something that God's dealt with you on, maybe at this moment. I'm not saying you got to make it public or anything, but where you are right now, if God's convicted you of something, well, maybe go before God right where you are and, and confront that and say, hey, Lord, I agree that is sinful in my life. Now help me to overcome that sin in Christ Jesus, right? Maybe, maybe today the Lord's uh, spoken to some of you. Maybe you need to get saved. Maybe you need to come for the first time to bow your knee to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've just been going through the motions. You've just been checking off your box. And today the Lord revealed to you that I need to trust Christ as my Savior. Well, today's the day. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe today you, you finally need to come to grips with the fact that, hey, God's brought me here. I've been coming here, but maybe I just need to join this church and be a part of what God's doing, right, in this local body of believers. Maybe you want to come talk about that today. Maybe you've been saved and you've never been baptized. Baptism don't save you, right? I, I, trust me, I got dunked so many times prune hands, right, before I finally came to faith in Jesus Christ. Every time I'd come to altar, she'd be scared of was getting saved again, right? And then the Lord helped me one day. He nailed that down for me, right? Because I realized it was in Christ and not in me. But maybe, but baptism is a step of faith. Maybe that's the step of, or the step of obedience. That's the step of obedience you need to take. Whatever it is that God's dealt with you about today, you be faithful uh, to, uh, to to do what He's asking you to do. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your Word. Thank you for this time. Be with us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.